Okay, we're reading um, from uh, chapter 1, verse 17, through to the end of chapter 2. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Hello again, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Phil Head. Uh, yeah, again, big shout out to uh, uh, Ian and Kate. Uh, this is mwah, me blowing a kiss uh, to lovely little baby Thomas. Uh, let me lead us briefly in prayer, and uh, we'll look at this wonderful part of God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, for this day, the day that you have made, where uh, we can uh, uh, gather in part at least. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, you'd work powerfully in us by your Holy Spirit and with your Father love and care, uh, you would enable us to comprehend and appreciate and apply the truths that you would have us learn from your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Friends, like any and every follower of Jesus, I can rightly describe myself as someone who has been saved. As someone who trusts in Jesus as my Lord, it follows that I also trust in Jesus as my Saviour. Being saved or having received salvation is often synonymous with being a Christian. And for Christians, it's just a run-of-the-mill, plain-as-day thing to say. I'm a father, hence I have children. I'm a Christian, hence... I'm saved. But like anything, common usage can make it easy uh, for us to forget why we use a term at all in the first place. Uh, in our time and culture, especially saying, I'm saved, immediately begs the question, saved from what? Saved by what? Saved for what? Saved so what? Uh, most of us, I suspect, will give a right answer to those sorts of questions. For example, I'm saved from... God's judgment and condemnation. I'm saved by, well, Jesus, of course, who took the punishment that I deserved. I'm saved for, well, for the privilege of serving God as one of his adopted children. He's now my father in heaven. And I'm saved, so what? Well, so I hope you are too. But it's much more important and, frankly, much more satisfying and helpful to hear God's own teaching on the character of God biblical salvation. 
Uh, if you're a nerd and you like big theological words, the subject is, is what we call soteriology, uh, salvation in the Bible. And it's also the case that more often than not, that even mature Christians who can give biblically informed answers still find themselves getting corrected by the scriptures on this most basic yet vital topic of salvation. And I actually expect that will happen now as we look at Jonah chapter 2, the Old Testament chapter that possibly more than any other unpacks for us what it means to say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah's words impress upon us firstly the extreme mercy of the salvation that comes from the Lord and secondly the impossibility of salvation that is yet able to be given by the Lord and thirdly how such a salvation motivates us to live for the Lord and I think at the moment we could all use a bit of motivation in living for the Lord. We begin, of course, with the mercy of God's salvation. Everyone who reads the book of Jonah quickly works out that chapter 2 is different from all the others. In the first verse, which really is the last verse of chapter 1, we're told that the Lord, that is Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, did the supernatural work of providing a huge fish to, to swallow Jonah and keep him alive three days and three nights. The last verse is where God commands the fish and it vomits Jonah up on dry land. But those two bookends are the only narrative in this chapter. All the rest of the chapter is Jonah doing his actual job as a prophet, which is speaking valuable and revelatory truths about God, which have been made clear to him through various God-given means. And the first profound lesson is that the God who created the land and the sea is profoundly merciful for he's the God who will listen to the cry of desperate sinners even from the realm of the dead. So chapter 2 and verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah's cry to God happened as he was literally, we know, drowning in water. Uh, calling out when you're underwater is rather ineffective. But the God who made the sea and the land, of course, can hear. And in this case, God's saving response, which he had prepared beforehand, was the, what I presume to be, supernaturally large fish that swallowed him. But Jonah's poor predicament was not just the difficulty of crying out while sinking to a watery death. It's also that for God's ancient people, the sea, metaphorically and actually often literally, meant death and separation from God. Remember that right in the beginning, after God created the heavens and the earth, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep Waters, which were kind of characteristic of the chaotic, formless void that he was planning uh, to overcome. He, he, he separated the water from the water, making the, the sea and sky, and, and saw that that was really good. But of course, when human rebellion reached a horrendous peak, which it didn't take too long, God undid his good work. He opened the floodgates of the heavens and let the, the springs of the earth uh, burst forth water, and of course, that resulted in the 
the judgment, the flood in the time of Noah. He did something similar with uh, Israel coming out of Egypt. He separates water from water in the Red Sea and the Israelites pass through on dry ground. But when it's time for the judgment of the Egyptians, he undoes that separation and, and the water brings death and separation from God. That's why Jonah says it's from deep in the realm of the dead that his cry somehow still came to God. It's not just the drowning. Jonah is acknowledging that he is rightly under the judgment of God. Hence, he's admitting, I think, his culpability for his sin. To intensify the remarkableness, Jonah then points out that even though it was the sailors who reluctantly threw him overboard, Jonah knew that his judgment was deserved and that it came about by the will of God. Hence, verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. In other words, he was, symbolically speaking, under the righteous judgment of the holy God. It's not the waves, but your waves, your holy wrath, if you like. Uh, I remember once having a nightmare about drowning uh, with that most horrendous feeling when your lungs are kind of like burning for lack of air. I don't know why that happens in your sleep, but you make yourself stop breathing. And of course, when I woke up, it was with that huge <gasps> sort of gas for, for air. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if uh, there's, a, I can't see your faces, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are nodding because apparently it's not that uncommon an experience every now and then for someone to, to have that sort of dream. Uh, terrible sort of feeling. But an even more devastating feature of God's terrifying judgment than the drowning is to be banished from his sight, which is what Jonah says has happened in the first half, as you can see on the screen, of verse 4, banished from your sight. Now, initially, that doesn't sound as bad as the drowning. It doesn't have all the drama, I suppose. But to be truly banished, truly estranged from the Creator is actually one of the ways that the Bible describes hell. You can see that if you're interested in, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let me read to you some words from an author who I think captures this idea of being banished from God horribly well. <clears throat> he had never felt such aloneness before. Where is my wife? He choked. Only that awful echo. Not here. Your wife is not here. He tried to piece it all together, but the darkness was too thick. Once in a while, he, he thought he could see a blurred figure or hear an anguished moan. He remembered the pain, those last moments of terror, but it was nothing compared to the feelings that were creeping into his awareness now. Again, he cried, where is my wife? Your wife is not here. Where are my children? Your children are not here. He started to grope about in the darkness, but all was blindness. My God, he howled again. Let me feel the presence of one single human being. My God. He hadn't said those words in such a long time. My God. And now they seemed so hollow. Terror was welling up inside him. He Felt like a small child being threatened by deep darkness. No candles anywhere. No love anywhere. No voice anywhere. Where is my wife? He screamed. Your wife is not here. 
Where are my children? He pleaded. Your children are not here. Then the greatest fear of all came to his mind. He was terrified to ask, but knew he would have to. His whole body trembled as he pursed his lips and wailed into the nebulous night. Where? Oh, where is God? As the deepest of all darkness closed in on his soul for all eternity, he heard that hideous echo whispering that most horrifying of all judgments. God is not here. So wrote a man named Richard Milham in a now hard-to-find book where he paraphrased and modernised some of the teachings of Jesus, in this case, one of Jesus' teachings about hell. Jonah was given a preview of what it's like for those who make the most tragic and foolish choice to walk away from the life-giving creator of heaven and earth, land and sea. It was really on account of Jonah's deliberate choice that he was, quote, banished from his sight. Hence, the second half of that verse would have been spoken, I think, with a most profound sigh of undeserved supernatural relief. Yet, he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. For Jonah, miraculously, it wasn't too late. In his great mercy, God had already planned to save Jonah despite his defiant rebellion. And the fact that God had now saved Jonah was the reason Jonah knew that he would again enjoy fellowship in the future with God. I mean, if why we were still rebellious enemies God chose to save us, then how much more, having been reconciled to God, shall we be saved from his wrath? But not only is God's salvation profoundly merciful, it would also be fitting to describe it as, humanly speaking, impossible. Jonah's prophetic teaching, teaching here impresses upon us the impossibility of salvation, Apart from the fact that, of course, with God, all things are possible. In verse 5, he says, The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, i.e. I was figuratively, possibly literally, I don't know, at the bottom of the sea, because that's where the, the seaweed grows. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. Now, you remember at this time, God's holy presence dwelt in his temple, which was on the top of his holy mountain. So here Jonah is as far away from God as he can be. He's down at the roots. And most horrible of all, the earth barred me in forever. This is the eternal death of those who deliberately defy the creator. Salvation for Jonah, by all accounts, could rightly be described as impossible. He's cut off from God's holy presence forever. Uh, you remember Noah, he obeyed God's command and was saved as the ark floated on top of the waters of God's judgment. But Jonah flagrantly defied God and has gone into the waters of God's eternal judgment. But even then, what is impossible with man, of course, is still 
possible with God. Because of what God alone had miraculously provided, Jonah could yet come out the other side. Hence the last bit of verse 6. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now, Surely it's for this reason that Jesus would later say that the only sign he gives to the depraved generation who asks for one is the sign of Jonah. Though completely sinless and undeserving, Jesus chose to be counted as a, as a sinner, someone who defies God, and he descended from God's true temple mountain in heaven, taking on human flesh and humbling himself all the way down to death on a cross. It is this Jesus who would somehow endure, not the symbolic, but the literal, eternal judgment of the holy God. And he did that for you and for me. Jonah couldn't have fully realised it at the time, but his words and his experience were actually given to illuminate the personal work of Jesus and the salvation that Jesus offers to us. The big difference is that when Jesus cried out to God from deep within the realm of judgment as he hung on the accursed cross, unlike Jonah, God did not answer his cry. Jesus said himself that he was God-forsaken. And Jesus did that willingly so that unworthy sinners like Jonah and like me and like you could be pardoned for all our offences. And yet, against all expectations of what's possible, Jesus' life would yet be raised up from the pit and he was welcomed onto the throne of heaven from where he rules to this day. Frankly, we all have the choice currently to defy him or to submit to him. As he comes to an understanding of the Lord's salvation, Jonah then finds renewed motivation for living in obedience rather than disobedience to God. Now, the first thing he does is to start being a proper prophet again, proclaiming what you could argue uh, is a truth that sums up the whole reason for the ministry of God's Old Testament prophets especially the 12 minor prophets. Verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Now here, Jonah could well be admitting his own failings with these words because thinking you'll be fine doing life your own way, running in the opposite direction from God and going it on your own is basically a form of idolatry. It's just another way of clinging to a worthless idol that you've created, hence it's turning away from God's love and therefore placing yourself under his holy judgment. So instead of turning away from God's love, Jonah says in verse 9, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And if you're shouting grateful praise, you're not shouting in order that God can hear it, he can hear you underwater. You're shouting it so that other people can hear it. That's what praise of God is, is praise him to others. You can tell Jonah has properly appreciated God's salvation because he's now happy to be public about the fact that he's a recipient of God's salvation. I'm always worried when I hear Christians insisting that faith is a private matter because that basically confirms to me they've not yet understood salvation properly. Jonah's renewed enthusiasm 
continues beyond it. He says, what I have vowed, I will make good, I will say, by which I think he means he'll publicly declare and teach, salvation comes from the Lord. That's the key words in this chapter. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That couldn't have smelt too good. Now, the context here makes it obvious that to say salvation comes from the Lord means that it comes entirely from the Lord and it's from absolutely no one or nothing else. Uh, It's a constant worry that there are whole religious institutions and systems that teach in effect that salvation comes partially from the Lord and partially from your good deeds or your obedience or partaking of sacraments or religious rites. In the end, all of those things are nothing more than forms of idolatry. Those who turn to such religion are in effect turning away from God's love for them. True salvation is entirely merciful, hence it's entirely undeserved. True salvation is impossible with man, only for God is it possible, hence it's entirely God's work. True salvation is salvation from death, judgment and separation from God. It's not salvation from financial hardship or from persecution or from the effects of sin in our fallen world. It's salvation from the death, judgment and separation from God that our sinfulness warrants. And true salvation is the thing that can genuinely motivate godly living. It's not rules and morality that compel us, but the love of Christ shown most profoundly in his saving work that compels us. But friends, there's also something of a corrective that I think Jonah's teaching here uh, gives to us. We are absolutely right to emphasise that as Christians, our salvation has been secured, past tense, because Jesus has already borne the final judgement in our place. But just as Jonah reasoned that he will again look to God's holy temple on the basis that the huge fish has already picked him up, So we too are right to remember that it's also important to speak of our salvation as a future event. Hebrews chapter 9 from verse 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. Again, Romans 5, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Friends, this is an area that often gets neglected in our thinking. Next time you have opportunity to speak of the faith that I hope you've owned for yourself, why not try saying to someone, I know that I will be saved. There's nothing at all heretical and everything biblical about that because the basis of our future, sure, salvation, happens to be our past and present salvation, which all comes from the same source, Christ and him crucified. But first things first, obviously, the first and most pressing implication from the word of God here is to make sure that you're saved, no matter who you are. 
even a prophet of the Lord can be someone who, in reality, is fleeing from God before he works out that salvation comes from the Lord. You can be a long-term churchgoer who has yet never seen yourself as completely helpless before God and in need of his loving salvation. The time is coming where God's final judgment on all rebellious sinners will be carried out and it will be eternal. So you'd be foolish to delay in accepting his loving offer of salvation through trust in the blood of Jesus. If you're not yet someone who's willing to sacrifice your life in the service of God, if you're not yet someone who can proudly declare salvation comes from the Lord, well then make sure you repent. Stop living for yourself. Ask God for the gift of salvation. If you want to hear more about that, John and I will be absolutely delighted. Make sure you put it in the connect form, which you'll hear about shortly. Finally, you want some more motivation? Reflect on the saving activity and attitude of the Lord, particularly the cross of Christ. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Here's a few rousing scriptures that do exactly that for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, which if I recall correctly, was actually a favourite of John O. Might, might still be. Yes, he's nodding. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, you all being the church, I guess us, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. And was raised again. Notice the motivation for godly living is not the rules, it's the death of Jesus. One more, Hebrews 12.1, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you, will not grow weary and lose heart. Brothers and sisters, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the biggest picture of which Jonah saw a preview of the mercy of God's salvation, of the impossibility of God's salvation and of the motivating force of God's salvation. Let me pray that by the power of his spirit, uh, that teaching actually gives us the motivation that we could also desperately use at the moment. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for uh, your wonderful word spoken by the prophet Jonah to assure us of our complete helplessness and inability to do anything for ourselves uh, regarding our relationship with you. But therefore, of your immense love, uh, in that you gave your one and only son, and then he descended all the way down to the bottom of the pit in order to bear your just judgment against us and that you raised him up to make him our Lord and our Saviour. Father, may we never fail to continually look to him, look to Christ crucified and through that process and your spirit working in us, give us the motivation we need to not run away from you but to run towards you and to boldly proclaim salvation comes from the Lord. Amen.